0: Amen. Well, let me invite you this morning to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark, uh, chapter number 2. Mark, chapter number 2, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through uh, the second Gospel account, which in history was actually the first Gospel account, and that is the Gospel account according to Mark. Um, We are in an interesting section in Mark. It is a section that is marked by controversy. Uh, Jesus in chapter 1 had passed through Capernaum. He had called a set of brothers to follow him, Peter, uh, Andrew, James, and John. And after casting out devils and, and performing miracles, Jesus left Capernaum. He goes out into the region of Galilee, uh, touches and heals a leper, and then he returns to Capernaum. And upon his return, Jesus does something that sparks tremendous controversy. He forgives a man of his sins. Now, that was more than just words spoken and an act performed. It was a declaration made by Jesus. Jesus was proclaiming himself to be God because he could do what only God could do and that is forgive someone of their sins. Now news continues to spread and Mark 1 through 12 shows us that God, Jesus is the God who forgives sins and I am so thankful for what follows because Mark 2 13 through 17 where we're going to be at today is going to show us that Jesus does more than just forgive sins. He is more than just the God who forgives sinners of their sins, but it's going to show us today that Jesus is the God who befriends sinners, and Jesus was and is indeed the friend of sinners. So let's read our text beginning in verse number 13. Scripture says, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples Um, a few weeks ago, I finished up a book by Jay Billis, it, a book called Toughness, and in the book, while he attempts to define what toughness really is, there was a story that stuck out uh, to me. He told of his dad. He spoke of his dad's toughness, seen it every single day, and his dad determined that he was going to make Jay Billis want to go to school. So his plan was this. During the summer, uh, between his junior and senior year, he was going to make Jay work with him to remodel some building he had built. And Jay said he thought, you know, what is this? I'm a highly recruited athlete from California. Uh, I'm going to go to Division I, and yet Dad wants me to to help you. Uh, Well, he obliged his father, and his responsibility was to carry the building material up the ladder to the top of the roof. And Billis carried what we would call a lazy man's load. Instead of taking several attempts to go up and down to get your stuff to the top, he tried to carry it all in one load. So he starts climbing up the ladder, his arms are full, and uh, he misses a step. And when he misses a step, he falls about eight feet down And the material goes all over the place. And his father walked over to him, and he looked at him, and he said, You know, Jay, you can't make it to the top of the ladder in one step, but you sure can make it to the bottom with one step. And it was that idea that seemed to stick out in his mind, and it also stuck out in my mind, that if you are not careful, if you don't watch your step, you can destroy all the progress that you seem to make in any area of life with one careless, miscalculated step. Well, what appears to happen in this passage is Jesus appears on the world standard, by the world standard, to take one of those careless steps. Up to this point, he's climbing the ladder of public notoriety, of fame. He is moving forward, is Fame has spread throughout all the region of Galilee. His teaching has captivated the hearts and the minds of those who have heard him. His miracles have amazed onlookers. His presence has attracted thronging crowds. And if you were to ask the world about Jesus, they would have said, He is on the ladder and he is climbing up. But all of that changes whenever you come to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Because it looks like Jesus has taken a risky, careless, miscalculated step that is going to alienate him from the public, that is going to make him uh, look bad to the people he's trying to reach. And as a matter of fact, it appears to be a step that he's going to miss a rung of notoriety and he's going to end up falling off the ladder of fame. And here's what that step is. He calls a tax collector by the name of Levi to follow him. And then he accompanies Levi back to his house where he is the guest of honor at a feast that Levi is throwing with many of his friends. And Jesus does the unthinkable. He eats and fellowships with Levi's friends who are characterized as tax collectors and sinners While he's at Levi's house. Now, as I look at this event in the life of Jesus and as I look at Levi's call and the celebration that that Levi had for Jesus and Jesus' presence there, I can't help but ask some questions in my mind. What's so bad about Levi that Jesus calling Levi to follow him would be a scandal to the community? Furthermore, what's so bad about Levi's friends? That just the mere eating of a meal would cause people to say, Jesus is going to dirty his reputation by hanging around people like that. Why was this move considered risky? But more importantly, here's what I want to ask. What does this event teach us about Jesus? What does this event teach us about the God who in verses 1 through 12, who forgives Sinners who is holy, who is righteous, who is above all. Well, it teaches us that Jesus indeed is the sinner's friend. And so what I want you to see in this text, I want you to see Jesus dealing with three sets of people in the text. You can see it pretty clearly. In verses 13 through 14, Jesus deals with Levi. In verses 15... We see that Jesus is dealing with Levis friends. And then in verses 16 and 17, we see that Jesus is going to de- Jesus deals with a group of people known as Pharisees. And in each instance, with each run-in with Jesus, with each act, with each word, we find something glorious about Jesus, the sinner's friend. Well, what do we learn? Well, first we see that Jesus calls The unlikely. When you look at Jesus and you look at how he reacts to Levi, we see that Jesus calls the most unlikely people in the world to be his disciples. Now, verse 13 says that he went out again by the sea. This means he's been there before. Well, readers of Mark know that in Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20, Jesus has already been by the sea. Of Galilee. And while he was there, guess what he did? He called four fishermen to follow him. Peter and Andrew and James and John. And so now Jesus goes back to the same fishing hole, pun intended, to catch somebody else. But this time, although fishermen were not held in the highest regard by the community, I mean, they weren't seen as rocket scientists or the, most, uh, um, the, 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 the greatest citizens of the day. Well, The fishermen were much greater, much held in much greater esteem than the man that Jesus was going to call when he goes back. Because when Jesus goes back this time, he doesn't call a fisherman, he calls somebody else. He calls someone much worse than a fisherman. He calls Levi, a tax collector. And as a matter of fact, Levi was seen not just as a sinner, he was seen as the worst of sinners. He was seen as the worst of the worst, and yet Jesus calls Levi. Now, his calling of Levi is a lot akin to how he calls you and me and how he calls every other sinner that he saves. I want you to see that Jesus calls sinners in their condition. Notice what it says. It says, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the booth. Now, why would this be considered sinful? Why would this be considered bad? All right, Jesus walks by the tax collector. He's sitting in the tax, collo- uh, tax, collo- tax booth, and he calls him to himself. Now, what's so sinful about that? Well, you have to understand something about tax collectors. Levi was not just some IRS employee in Jerusalem. It was much worse than that he was actually more akin to a mafia figure than he was a government employee because here's the way they collected taxes in the first century. Rome would levy a tax against an area, but they would not have government officials collect those taxes. They would subcontract that out to a middleman. A middleman would lease out the area for himself. Then he would have henchmen, that's the best word I could come up with, uh, that he would send to certain areas in that region And their responsibility was to collect the taxes from the people. Now, here's the deal. The middleman wanted to make money. The henchman wanted to make money. And Rome had to have their tax. So what they would do is this. They would not just collect the tax from the people. They would collect far more. They would add surcharges to the people so that whenever they got the money from the people, they would send it on up the line. Rome would get their cut. They were happy. The middleman who leased out the area would get his cut. He was happy. And then the tax collectors who collected them at the booths, they would get a big cut as well. So basically what they were doing, they were robbing the people blind. And the people hated them. They saw them as thieves. And they were right. They saw them as low-down dirty dogs. And they were pretty much right. As a matter of fact, they were despised by Israel. They... If you wanted to insult somebody in that day, you'd call them a tax collector. Get this. (laughs) They were discredited in the courts. If if you wanted to commit cold-blooded murder, and if a tax collector saw you commit the murder, do you know the prosecutor could not call the tax collector to the stand to testify against you? You know why? Because their word was not held uh, in honor in the courts of Israel. They were barred from testifying in court. Here's what they thought. They're so dishonest and they're so low down and they're so so bad, you can't believe a word that they say. So they weren't even allowed to testify in court. Furthermore, to be a tax collector not only brought ill repute upon you, it was also a disgrace to your family. It could have been a reason why Alpheus is mentioned here as well. I mean, think about that. Alpheus probably held in high, high esteem and guess what? He has a son grows up. And guess what happens to that son? He, became, he becomes a no-good, low-down-dirty tax collector. Yeah. What in the world did Alphys do at his house? Where did he go wrong? How in the world could Levi, who had so much potential, end up being such a scoundrel and a tax collector? It had to be something wrong with the parenting. I mean, think of this. Here he is in the midst of his sin. And what I love about it is, Jesus walks by him while he's sitting there scamming, robbing, cheating, and thieving. And he says to him, follow me. He doesn't wait for him to get a new occupation. He doesn't wait for him to sign a letter of resignation. He doesn't wait for him to quit and start get a new job. No. While he is in the midst of his sin, he calls him to follow him. Do you know many sinners, many unbelievers think they have to get better before they get saved. They think that they have to go through some type of spiritual 10 step program uh, in order for them to get good enough to where Jesus would call them and Jesus would save them. They think that they have changed before meeting Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is this, He doesn't wait for anybody to change because he knows we cannot change. And therefore, without him, therefore, he calls us while we are in our sins. Can a leopard change
1: its spots?
0: No. And a sinner cannot quit sinning, and we can't quit what we're doing. We can't change ourselves. But thankfully, Jesus comes and he calls us in our condition, but he also calls us away from our condition. Look what he says. It says he saw him and he said to him, follow me. I mean, just two words. Two words. Follow me. This is not an invitation from a beggar. This is the command from a master. He doesn't go around weakly, urging, begging, pleading sinners. Would you please come? No, he walks as the sovereign Lord of all and he says, follow me. He gives the command. And this command is glorious when you think about it. I mean, just think about these two words, follow me. Think of the simplicity of it. Pretty simple, isn't it? Follow me. What is Jesus saying to Levi? Jesus is saying to Levi, I want you to follow me. And I think most people that's where we mess up when it comes to being a Christian, when it comes to getting saved. Most people have this idea about being a Christian. You have to get up in the morning. You've got 52,000 rules that you have to follow. And if you, if you fall off the pumpkin wagon, if you mess up on one of those rules, you're, you're out. So what in the world is the use to even, to even do it? I mean, I've got all these rules. I've got all these regulations. I've got all these, all these things boxing me in. And it's very burdensome. Is that what being a Christian is about? No. Being a Christian is about two words. Follow me. It's about following the Lord Jesus Christ. That is simple. That's simple enough that a child can understand. And listen, we follow him. We follow him through bumps. We follow him through bruises. We follow him through ups. We follow him through downs. We follow him through successes. We follow him through our failures. This is a holistic call to follow me. But then... Think also, not just of the simplicity of it, but think of the urgency of it. Again, this is a command follow me. It is a call to act immediately. It is a call to act now. You know, Scripture always places an emphasis on now, on today. Come now, Isaiah says, and let us reason together, says the Lord. For though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. When do you come? Come now, says the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Hebrews 3 says, Today, today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation. When is the day of salvation? Now. It is today. The call of the gospel is the call to respond immediately. To respond now, to respond today. Not to put it off to next week. Not to put it off to next month. Not to put it off until you've got some other things figured out or other things worked out. But it is a call to respond to the call of the gospel immediately, now. And think of the totality of it. How does he respond? Well, Scripture says this of Levi. It says that he rose and followed him. Now, we know from Matthew's account, and we also know from Luke's account, that Levi is not his only name. This man is also uh, named Matthew. Do you know the first gospel you come to in the New Testament? It's Levi. It's Matthew. It's the same guy. Now, think of this. Jesus must love scoundrels. Because in Mark, he picks a quitter to record his first gospel account. And in Matthew, he picks one of the greatest sinners that Israel had ever known about to record his his other gospel account. Listen, I always say this. Jesus must really love sinners because he saves so many of them. He saves us because he loves us. But think of the totality of it. Luke tells us that he left everything and rose and followed him. He left the money on the table. He left, he left all the receipts. He left it all there and he left the booth. Just as earlier when Peter and Andrew and James and John left the nets and left the boats and left their father sitting in the boat to follow Jesus, so too Levi does the same thing. Do you know why? Because in Jesus... He saw something that he loved more than the taxes. He saw something more that he loved more than the money. He saw something that he loved more than the fame and the riches of this world. He saw something that satisfied his soul truly. And thus, he followed Jesus and he left the tax booth. Listen, why is it that people change whenever they come to Jesus? Is it that when we when someone gets saved, we again we hand them a card with five thousand rules on it that they start trying to follow, and that's what why they change? No, no, people change because they find in Jesus what they've been trying to find in everything else that's left them unsatisfied. They find something that satisfies their soul and quenches their spiritual thirst. And so be thankful today that Jesus calls them likely. You could have searched through Israel. And you would have never believed that this up-and-coming teacher, rabbi, miracle worker would have chosen someone like Levi to follow him. I'll tell you something greater than that. They would have never believed that the holy God of heaven would have ever called a sinner like Levi to be one of his own. He calls the unlikely. But now after he leaves Levi, Levi throws a party. I mean, you you come to know Jesus, that's time to celebrate. And so he invites people to come to his house. And the Bible says in verse 15, he was reclining at table in his house and many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Well, here is the second set of people that Jesus meets. A group of tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. Now, if Levi and Jesus teach us that Jesus calls the unlikely, Jesus and Levi's friends shows us that Jesus receives the undesirable. You see, Jesus is now the guest of honor at Levi's house. And he calls up the people that he knows. And do you know the only people, really, that this sinner knows is a bunch of sinners? <laughs> and so it says, we're having a feast at the house. Something's happened to me. I want you to meet this man that I met. And he's changed my life. We're going to celebrate. And he's the guest of honor. And so they come to his house. And when they come to his house, Jesus reclines with them. Jesus eats with them. And his house is filled with sinful people. Now, here's what I love. Levi didn't just call up his friends and say, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm cutting you out. You're too sinful for someone as holy as me to be around. So so guess what, you bunch of scoundrels? I'm done with you. I've washed my hands with you all. Is that what he does? No, no. One of the things I love about when when people initially get saved, most of the time, most of an unbeliever's friends are unbelievers. And so it's a great opportunity for that, that circle to expand out and the gospel to expand out from that one individual who has come to faith in Christ to open up the door for other people. To come to know Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Levi does. Beloved, listen. You shouldn't discard your unbelieving friends. If if, if you think your unbelieving friends are lepers who will stain you with their mere presence and their sinfulness will somehow get on you, well, we're going to meet people who are just like that in just a few minutes. You don't want to be like those people, okay? Uh, But they come. And how does Jesus treat them? Well, we see here that he identifies with sinners. The Bible says he reclined at table in his house. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you come to eat at my house, uh, thankfully, I have a kitchen table and have chairs and you'll sit there and we'll sit around in chairs and we'll, we'll eat. Well, in this day and time, they, they, they had tables, but most of the time when they had a big feast like this, they would put the food out on the floor, they would spread it out on a mat, a uh, little small table and people would just lean maybe on their, their elbow and on their side and they would just lean over and they, it was very casual. They would, they would lean over and they'd pick up whatever they want. That's what it means to recline at table. He wasn't sitting in a lazy boy. He was laying on the table on his side reaching out to get food. And it is spread out and all around this food, nothing but tax collectors. Scoundrels like Levi. And furthermore, sinners. Now, I don't know why there is a difference between tax collectors and sinners, but there is. I don't know if that was a way to say the tax collectors were the worst, and then there's just your ordinary run-of-the-mill sinners. Or if there's a bunch of tax collectors, and there is maybe a group of people worse than them, maybe prostitutes. I do know that Jesus is at reclining at table in Luke with another group of people and they said he's hanging out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and, and everybody else. What's the deal with this? But, but here Jesus is eating a meal with them. This was a way in the first century of identifying with them, of, of welcoming them, of being friendly toward them. And this is a reminder to you and me, beloved, that the kingdom of Christ is not made of the uppity-ups. It's made of the down and ounce. And isn't it a beautiful picture? Jesus with a bunch of sinners and a bunch of tax collectors sitting around enjoying a feast. It is a beautiful portrait and a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. Do you know of all the pictures the Bible paints about heaven? it, It paints several pictures of it. One of the pictures it paints about heaven is that of a feast. And in Luke chapter 14, it gives us the idea of who's going to be at this feast. The parable Jesus gives is a man made this great feast for his son and he sent out his servants to go tell people, come out, come to this banquet made for my son. And one person said, well, I can't come. i just married a wife. Another person said, I've got to work in the field. Another person said, I'll, I'll come later. And so they wouldn't come. Those who to society looked to be whole, those to society who looked to be good, refused it. So what did they say? He said, well, go out into the highways and the hedges and get the lame, get the hawk, get the mane, get the deaf, get those no one else wants. Bring them in that my house might be filled. And that is exactly who filled the banquet of the master's son in Luke 14. And beloved, when we get to heaven, there will not be one individual there who would have been whole on their own. There will be a bunch of spiritual lepers, a bunch of spiritual lame people, a bunch of spiritual cripples who will be surrounded by a table with the one perfect Lamb of God who loved them, who died for them, and who was their friend. This is a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God. I, for one, in studying this passage, became even more thankful that Jesus is a sinner's friend. Because if Jesus was not the friend of sinners, he would have no use for someone like me. Beloved, he accepts those other people avoids. He loves those other people loathes. He receives those other people reject. And beloved, he identifies with sinners. And he also receives sinners. He receives sinners. What happens? Well, notice what happens in verse 16. And the scribes and the of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and, and sinners? Now, I don't know how this group got in there. Uh, maybe they just passed by and they saw it and they hollered for one of the disciples to come out to them. I, I don't know. But here's the idea why is he eating with them? What's he doing? Luke 15 says that Jesus receives sinners. And they, they, they struggle with him because he receives sinners. Um, now, understand what the word receive means. The word receive means to, to welcome as a guest. Okay? Now, we've all had people, when we're eating dinner, come up, knock on our door. And what's, what do you do? Oh, who is that? All right? Who is that? Then you go up to the door, you peep through the peephole, and in about a split second, you see who they are. And if it's not somebody you know or if it's somebody who's there to sell you something or, or something like a politician or something, you're thinking immediately, how can I be nice, cordial, and get them out of here as fast as possible? See, I'm, I'm just honest. I think the same way you think sometimes. Okay, But what happens if you're eating, you hear a knock at the door? And you get up, you go in there, and you peek through there, and you look. and Say it's a best friend you hadn't seen in forever. What if it's a family member who who lived away, and then they came in, and they just wanted to stop in and say hi to you? What what if it's a child who just out of the blue surprises their parent with a visit? You may have to call Lifeline or someone like that. (laughs) The shock would scare you to death. What would you do? Would you treat them differently? Sure, you throw open the door. Come on in. What are you doing? We're just eating dinner. You want to sit down and have something to eat? You see the difference? In one, yeah, you open the door. You'll talk with them. You'll be cordial to them. And then you'll send them on their way. The other one, you welcome them. You receive them. Well, that's exactly the way Jesus is with sinners. Jesus doesn't just peep in the peephole and say, oh, well, how am I going to get rid of that low-down sinner? No, he opens the door and welcomes you in and says, here, come, sup with me and I will sup with you. He wants sinners. He loves sinners. He desires to save sinners. And he receives sinners. Listen, no matter what we have done, no matter how far we have strayed, no matter the guilt and the shame that we have he still opens his doors to us and receives sinners and fellowships with the likes of you and the likes of me that blows my mind it is a scandal but it is glorious all at the same time you see, Jesus, he receives the undesirable the scribes would have never reached out to this group of people the Pharisees would have never reached out to this group of people but Jesus opens the door to them and Jesus eats with them And Jesus receives the undesirable. But there's a third. And in the third group, we not only see that that Jesus calls the unlikely and Jesus receives the undesirable. But thirdly, we see that Jesus heals the unrighteous. In verses 16 through 17, Jesus now has a run in with a third group of people. The Pharisees. Now, get this. Everybody else is celebrating Except the Pharisees, they're complaining. I mean, the Pharisees, they have the God-given ability or the devil-given ability to be able to drag down any type of celebration that's going on. Because with the Pharisees, the mere sight of grace makes them uncomfortable. You ever been around people that, that, that grace makes them uncomfortable? I mean, they're joy killers, They're not joy-filled. They are joy-killers. And they have the ability to absolutely destroy anything that is going on. They suck the joy right out of you. They're miserable. They want everybody else to be miserable. And they have the ability to make everybody else miserable. And here's the deal. Sometimes in my own heart, I have to guard myself. Because if I'm not careful... Instead of being like the Jesus who's reclining with sinners at the table in Levi's house, I can become more like the Pharisees who are repulsed by sinners standing outside of the house. Now, what are some marks of Pharisees? How do I know if I'm one of these Pharisees? Well, from what they say to Jesus, here's what we know. We know that they're spiritually arrogant. Can you hear the condescension in their voice whenever they say, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. Do you hear that? It's as if they're looking down their long nose at them. It's as if they feel as if they are better than them. They feel like they're better than them because they think they're better than them. Listen, Pharisees lived a very strict life. You want to talk about obeying rules and regulations? You don't get any better than the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the best of the best when it came to having morals. Listen, the Ten Commandments weren't enough for them. They took the Ten Commandments and and, and, and out of the Ten Commandments, they branched off and came up with some extra commandments just in case by doing something they may have by some chance broken one of the Ten Commandments. So out of the Ten Commandments, they branch out and end up with 613 commandments that they lived by religiously, religiously. It became their tradition It became their code, and so they wouldn't eat certain foods without washing their hands in a particular way. Uh, If if they're walking down the road and they find 50 cents, they would give five cents to to the Lord. They would tithe even of anything they found. I mean, everything, they would follow it to a T. They were legalists. John Piper said this of legalists. He says that a legalist is someone... Or legalism is the conviction that law keeping is the grounds of our acceptance with God. And it is a failure to be amazed at grace. You see, here's the whole problem with the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought that God accepts you based on what you do. You do everything right, God welcomes you in. God accepts you. God's pleased with you. You make make one little mistake, one little boo-boo, and God no longer accepts you. And you are out and, and, and you're done. And so that's why they live such a strict law, a lifestyle. And what happens, inevitably what happens is they start looking at other people who do not live by their commandments and their standards and their rules and their regulations and they start developing judgmental feelings toward them. Oh, their robe's not as long as my robe, which was one of their laws. Their tassels aren't numbered as many as my tassels, which was one of their laws as well. They, don't, they eat food that I would never eat. They touch things I would never touch. And so you know what? I'm better than them. And You know, there is a danger in our hearts that we become Pharisees. There's a danger in our hearts that we look at somebody because their appearance is different than ours. They dress differently than we do. Their hair is different than ours. They... They have different ideas than we do that we, we, we don't pity them as sinners. We look down our nose at them as if they are less than we are. Listen to me. A Pharisee in the first century could walk through the back door of any Baptist church in America and the church would think it would be the greatest blessing that they had decided to join. Yeah. They'd never embarrass your church by, by misbehaving. Talk about your offerings going up. They tithe of everything that they got. Everybody would want them. And you talk about knowing the law. They read their Bible religiously. They knew it. They were conservative spiritually and politically. They'd fit right in. And yet, they were lost. You see, it's the Pharisee in me who looks at other people who are different than me those people sin differently than I sin. And I feel like I'm better than them because I don't struggle with their sin. Have you ever noticed that? We are the most judgmental toward those who sin differently than we do. I don't have any, I don't have any temptation for homosexuality. So guess what? I'm going, to, I'm going to judge homosexuals because it just don't bother me. And, and it kind of makes me feel good to, 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 to look down on homosexuals. Or I'm not a drunk. And so I look at a drunk landing his own vomit. And I feel good about myself whenever I judge them. Because I don't struggle with that. But you know whenever we are that way. We're proving that we are arrogant. Because we feel as if we are better than someone else. Listen we're all in the same boat. And it's the one that was sinking apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are all sinners. God forbid that we be spiritually arrogant and think that we are any better than anyone else. There's nothing good in us. There is none good, no, not one. There's nothing good in you. There's nothing good in me. And how arrogant and haughty it is of me to look as if I'm better than a sinner. They're spiritually arrogant, and they're spiritually arrogant because they're spiritually ignorant. What are they ignorant of? They're ignorant of their own sin. You see, they're ignorant of who Jesus is. And because they're ignorant of who Jesus is and what he came to do, they're ignorant of their own sin. Jesus here speaks metaphorically. He knows what they're saying, he knows what they're thinking. And so he says this those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I can almost hear the Pharisees, amen, and him. Yeah, you're exactly right. Those poor sinners in there, they're the sick ones. And Jesus is talking about them. That's the irony of it all, isn't it? As a matter of fact, we've, we've been bad to the poor prodigal son, the younger son, haven't we? We've been pitiful to him over the years. The scoundrel who comes up to his father and he says, give me the inheritance that comes to me. And the father gives him his inheritance and he runs away and he spends it all. He wastes it all on, on the King James says, riotous living, on loose living. And then he comes back, oh, we tell that story and that, that younger son is just the devil. But the point of the prodigal son is not to get the attention of the younger son. You see, the point of the prodigal is to get us to focus our attention on the elder son. See, the elder son always did what was right. The elder son never left. The elder son followed the rules of the house. But here's the deal. The elder son proves you can be in close proximity to the father and be a billion miles away from the father's heart. See, the father rejoiced when that younger son returned back home. But what did that older son do? Hey, where's my feast? Where's my fatted calf getting sacrificed? I've never left you. You've never done anything like this for me. Your son, he wasted your life on you're living on prostitutes and other people. I'm better than him. You know who Jesus told that story to? A group of Pharisees. And you know what those Pharisees were saying to Jesus before he told them that story? This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus is basically saying, listen, yeah, these sinners, they're like that younger son. They've left, they've gone out. But you're just like that bigger brother. And you don't have a heart like the Father has a heart for. Or you would rejoice. You would rejoice. When sinners come to faith. And so here he's doing somewhat the same thing. Fine, you don't think you're sick? You don't need me. Go on about your way. I've come for sick people. I've come not to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. And so the person who thinks they're good enough, although they need Jesus, Jesus says, you don't need me. Go about it on your own. See how that helps. I come for sinners. You see, he came to call those who could not help themselves. He came to heal those who could not heal themselves. He didn't come to call moralists or legalists. He didn't come to hand out a bunch of rules. He came to say to sinners who are hopelessly lost without him, follow me. That's what he came to do. But here's what I've learned. I've learned that people don't come to the great physician For One of two reasons. One is they have no hope. They feel hopeless. There are some people who think that if they come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they have done too much. They have been too sinful. They have done too many bad things. And there's no way Jesus can forgive them of their sins. Well, listen. I could ask for testimonies, but most of us would be too embarrassed to give ours. (laughs) Jesus has forgiven us of sins. Jesus has forgiven us of of our guilt and of our shame and he has removed that. And we stand before you as Paul does in 1 Timothy 1 and say to you that if he can save me, the chief of sinners, he can save anyone. That's the way we should all feel. But there are some who feel they've done too much. They've sinned too much. God's out to get them. And so they feel hopeless. But then there are some who they don't feel hopeless They feel as if there's no need. This is the moralist. This is the legalist crew. This is the crew who who they don't see themselves as being sick. They, They have good morals. They live good lives. They love their family. They go to work. They do everything you're supposed to do. It's those people who look at Christians and they say, Hey, if they're going to heaven, I don't have anything to worry about. Because... I live just as good as they do, probably even better. That person sees themselves not as being sick. And that person is in danger, in danger. Uh, Shelly's uncle, Binky, passed away on the 4th and his funerals today. But, but I didn't know till the visitation that her other uncle, Doug, almost died a few weeks ago. Um, he started throwing up. Feeling bad, started thinking. You know, uh, his his wife Rhonda tried to get him to go to the doctor, and and he kept thinking, ah, it'll pass, it'll pass, it'll pass. Well, after about four days of this, he finally goes to the doctor. Come to find out, he's he's having gallbladder attacks. Uh, his gallbladder's shot. Gangrene's already set up. Infection spread throughout his body. Sepsis. They call in an emergency team to operate on him, and the doctor tells him, he said, you know what? About three hours later. And there's nothing anybody could have done for you. You almost waited too long. Here he was thinking he just had a, had a bug. And he almost died. Because he wouldn't go to the doctor. And I'm afraid that many people are a whole lot in the same boat spiritually. Uh, you know, every now and then that they sin, it that's kind of bother them a little bit. But, but, but they keep on thinking they'll be okay. There's no need to come to Jesus. And they keep on putting it off and they keep on putting it off and they keep on putting it off until finally there's going to come a time when it's going to be too late. And then what? Then what? What excuse will there be? There will be no good excuse. You see, the gospel tells us this. There is no sinner so bad that he cannot be saved. And there is no person so good that he need not be saved. Everybody needs salvation. Everybody needs to be healed by the great physician. And the good news is this. 2,000 years ago, God sent his son to this earth. He died on a cross in our sin and in our place. He bore his wrath in our place. And now I can say to sinners far and wide, if you will come to the great physician, if you will come to Christ by faith alone, he will save you. He will change you. He will give you eternal life. And here's the best part. He even paid the bill for you. You owe him nothing. Nothing. He paid it all. And so today, I ask you this. Do you know Jesus, the sinner's friend? Do you feel you're too hopeless in your sin to follow him or then come follow him? Do you feel like you're not, you don't need him? Beloved, you do. You do. Now I'm going to ask you to do exactly what Levi did. I'm going to ask you to right now in your sin, in your condition, I'm going to ask you to come. And I'm going to ask you to follow Jesus. Not Lakeville, not Justin, not Rules, not... Re- I'm going to ask you to follow Jesus as your Lord and your personal Savior. Let's pray. Fathers, I come to you today in Jesus' name. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your spiritually healing touch. I come to you today to ask that you would draw sinners to yourself. Should there be those who feel hopeless in their sin today, I pray that your amazing, scandalous grace would open up their heart and that the rivers of your forgiveness and your mercy would flood over them. And they would realize that they're not too bad, they're not too sinful to be saved. Draw them. For those who are here, who the world would consider good, moral people, but yet they don't know you. I pray, Heavenly Father, that the need for salvation will arise in their hearts, that they will see themselves as sinners condemned before a holy God, but that you sent your Son to die for sinners and that they need Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would forsake their good works. They would forsake their good deeds. They would forsake their good efforts all by receiving you and believing in you and trusting in you alone for their salvation. And Father, for those of us who do know you, God, let us be more like you and less like the Pharisees. Let it be said of us, they are the sinner's friend. Let us show them your love. Let us show them your compassion. Let us share with him your gospel. Crown this invitation with victory, I pray, in the saving of souls. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Let's stand this morning, and here's what I'm going to ask. Just as Jesus passed by Levi and called him from where he sat, I'm going to ask you to come from where you are, from where you sit, where you stand, and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I want to trust Jesus. I want him to be my Lord and my Savior. How do you come? Come just the way you are. Will you come today as we sing?
1: Come out of from wherever you live. Come broken hearted rescue again. Come find your mercy, oh sinner, come.
0: Feel free to come just as you are.
1: So lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face.
0: free to come, you need it, you need it,
1: there's hope, there's hope, for us. in all those who should yeah. come sit at this table, taste the grace of yeah. there's hope, rest that